Welcome to Decoding Superhuman. This show is a deep dive into obsessions with performance and how to improve the human experience. Twice a week, I explore the latest science, technology, and tactics with experts in various fields of human optimization. I'm your host, Boomer Anderson. Enjoy the journey. Superhumans, we're back with the round two. And my guest today is Dr. Paul Larson. If you recall the first conversation that Dr. Larson and I had, we got into a lot of stuff around endurance training, but also HRV. And I wanted to bring him back on to talk a little bit about his specialty. He resides at the nexus between exercise performance research, theory, and application. He's an adjunct professor of exercise physiology at AUT University in New Zealand, and he leads research into low-carb diets and its impact on performance. So selfishly, I reached out to Dr. Larson because I am in the process of training for a marathon. It was something kind of spur of the moment, wanted to train for it, and have been following what most would call a cyclical ketogenic diet for the past several years. I feel really good on it, and I wanted Dr. Larson's opinion as to how that would work in marathon training. I also wanted his opinion on high-intensity interval training, which is something he's also known for, and using that to train for long-distance endurance events like marathons. So naturally, instead of just having the conversation with Dr. Larson, I wanted him to come on the show and walk you guys through all of this. So all of my questions around marathon training, how to do it in kind of a minimum effective dose style while not losing some of my mass that I've built from the powerlifting days is all compiled into this episode. We get into feeding, we get into exogenous ketones and using those. We get into high-intensity interval training in the context of a longer-distance race. And there's a lot of really good information here, and I know we have a number of Ironman triathletes that listen to the show, but also marathon runners. So check out the show notes to this one, which can be found at decodingsuperhuman.com slash Dr. Larson, that's L-A-U-R-S-E-N-2, as in the number two. That's Dr. D-R Larson 2. Enjoy my episode with Dr. Paul Larson. Dr. Larson, welcome back. Hey, Boomer. Thanks for having me back. It's great to be here. This is round two. And round one was much more of a discussion on high-intensity interval training. And, you know, in our follow-up, or really just kind of the five minutes after we we got done recording last time, I realized that there's probably a dozen, if not more questions I wanted to ask you. So thank you again. Oh, it's a pleasure. Always love chatting. So last episode, as I said, we got much more into kind of high intensity interval training. This one, I want to talk a little bit about training nutrition because, uh, what I want to understand a little bit more about is just kind of ideal diets for athletes. Is there such a thing? <laughs> uh, you know, there, there is, and there isn't, I think. And it, uh, unfortunately the, 
the simple answer is that it really kind of comes down to the individual and we're appreciating that more and more these days. And I, I've, you know, I've learned that the hard way. I think I used to take a, a pretty hard stance on, on diet and then that there was a certain, probably a certain best way to eat. And to be can honest, I, can I, I ask what they used to be was at that point? Yeah, well, I think that's actually evolved throughout my 30-year career. And, <laughs> mm-hmm. um, you know, I probably, you know, I've gone from vegetarianism to high carbohydrate to, uh, you know, low carbohydrate and ketogenic um, to, to then working with others and not getting the response in, you know, all those various sort of diets that... Um, that was expected that maybe I got. So, uh, you know, it, the only thing I can kind of conclude from it and more evidence that I can get when we actually look at the physiological responses, just point to the fact that we are all so individual when it comes to our, our diet. And the ideal diet might even change as we, as we age. So, um, so yeah, it really you know sadly or uh, just it's the way it is it, it really kind of comes down to that individual and the, you know them figuring out for themselves what's what's working and what's not so if one were to want to delve into this realm and we're talking and correct me if i'm wrong here dr paul um if one were to want to dive into this and really understand just you know, what is right for them and how they can find their own right diet. Would they, what sort of parameters or devices would you recommend pursuing? Sure. Well, I think I would, before I move to any devices, I would ask that individual to just reflect on themselves. Uh, And, you know, I would ask them to, you know, are they performing as they want to be in their daily, uh, their daily tasks, whether that's fitness, exercise, performance, or whether that is, you know, um, performing at work? You know, how are they performing cognitively? Are they alert? Are they bright? Are they sharp? Making quick, you know, the, the decisions they want to, to make. And, you know, if they're looking in the mirror, are they carrying a little bit excess, um, you know, weight on them that they, you know, maybe is an ideal um, for for them. Okay. That's first and foremost. All right. And then, you know, you can, we can, we can dive further into that and get a little bit more. Let's you know, get granular. Um, so body composition. Yeah. So now body composition is the next one. So for eyeballing ourselves in the mirror and we're, you know, maybe things aren't uh, ideal. Let's get some concrete evidence in front of us. Uh, and let's, let's do like a DEXA scan. If we, if we have that, um, so a DEXA scan is, a you know, something we can go into various different places. You can, you can, you know, um, just type DXA on your, in your Google search and see if there's a, a DEXA that's, that, re, uh, you know, resides nearby your, your center. And you can kind of go in there and get a scan for, you know, 50 to a hundred dollars, depending on, on where you're at. Mm-hmm. And if you're, if you don't have, and that'll, that'll give you your percentage of body fat. You know, and you probably, if you're a male, you, you know, you ideally want to be around that sort of, um, you know, 
12 to 14%, maybe even a little bit leaner if you're, you know, an elite endurance athlete. Uh, and if you're, you know, and, and maybe if you're female, you want to be at below that, you know, around that 18 to 20%. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, if, if you're not, maybe there's some things that we can tweak and um, diet is one of a number of factors that go towards, um, you know, altering that body composition. Of course, stress, exercise, and sleep are probably the uh, the other the other key players in that one. It's not just down to the diet, but diet is a great place to start because it's totally actually within your mostly within your control, mostly within mm-hmm. your control. So yeah, that that's um, and if you and I should also say if you don't have a DEXA, you can't get access to a DEXA. So you know, for example, I'm I'm in a remote center. Uh, you know, someone call it a little bit of a blue zone, and and I I couldn't get access to a DEXA here, but I certainly have access to you know um, a you know a, a scale and and tape measure, and mm-hmm. the other thing we can get is a you know a height to body mass ratio as well, and um, yeah, you you want your you know your or, or sorry a waist to body height ratio, and you want your your um your waist measurement to be less than um you know half of your height ultimately so that's the other that's the other thing we can kind of do so yeah you don't want you don't yeah so it should be less than two times you should be able to go less than two times around with your overall height okay yeah and if the waist is going bigger than the than the height well that's that's again a a real risk marker for that central adiposity that is that we don't want to have right we don't we don't want to have central adiposity whether you're male or female for whatever reason this is um you know this is almost related to an inflammatory fat that is related to both your both your diet which can be a you know a um a stressor in itself and um and and the all the other various different stresses that we endure in our life so um yeah whatever for whatever reason the body um, it responds and rebounds by putting more mass and, and, and stores fat around the, the mid, the, the mid, uh, mid drift. And, you know, it adds, uh, there's fat around the organs and this is not, you know, this is associated with, with, uh, adverse, adverse health, various different factors. Mm-hmm. So, I, I'm going to ask you later about one specific thing and it, it I maybe is my own self-serving bias here because I, I do want to talk into some of your work with endurance athletes and low carbohydrate diets. But uh, when we were exchanging emails beforehand, you mentioned that someone, if they're interested, could use something like a CGM in order to mm-hmm. identify these kind of uh, potential pitfalls, if you will, or, you know, foods that may or may not work for them and then kind of optimize their diet. Do you mind just going into how you your, yourself if or, or if you were working with a client would do that? Yeah, for sure. That's a great, uh, a great idea. So CGM is a continuous blood glucose monitor and uh, you know, there's a number that are out there on the market. So Dexcom is one, Abbott is another, there may be others. Do you I'm have a favorite one? Yeah. Which, which, what, which one's your favorite? Dexcom is my favorite. Okay. And, um, you know, I, I wouldn't say I, I think it's just the accuracy of the 
Dexcom. And one of the things I appreciate about Dexcom is how, you know, when I t- when I take a Dexcom me- uh, measure or when I take a blood glucose measure um, mm-hmm. from say like a, free- a freestyle Libra blood glucose monitor, it's almost the same as you know. I take it to calibrate it, and it's almost the same as the Dexcom. And I think the price point on the Dexcom is coming down a lot. Uh, and it really is going to depend where you are in the world as to whether or not you can get access to that one. Some places they're regulated by, a, you know, you need a, a prescription, um, but other places I think they're opening up the markets where you can, you, can, you know, you could actually purchase that yourself. Everyone should come to the Netherlands. You can get one over the counter. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So fantastic. So there you go. And the insight that that will get you, if you just, even if you did like a couple of weeks, the insight that you'll get from monitoring your blood glucose on a daily basis is profound. And, you know, you will see all the various different factors that affect your, just your blood glucose response. And the reason why we might want to monitor our blood glucose response to get it is that this comes back to where we started. And that's the, we want to find out what's ideal for, an in, for our, ourselves as individuals. We know that the blood glucose response is likely going to parallel the insulin response. Insulin, of course, is our storage uh, hormone. It's signaling all the cells in the body to, to store their energy. And of course, you know, a lot of us from the from the vanity standpoint or whatnot, um, that's going to be the adipose uh, cells, right? So your fat cells are going to enlarge, and if their insulin is is out there and and um, and very prevalent. And you're going to see how many spikes of insulin you get, or in, sorry, how many spikes of glucose that you get in a day from various different factors, um, from individual foods that you will eat, from the stress in your life. So for example, one day I was wearing my Dexcom, sitting on the couch, fa- having fasted for most of the day. Uh, I, was, you know, I think I was doing a fasting day and uh, it was you know, 3 p.m. and I received a, uh, a nasty email just sitting, just lying down on the couch. I received a nasty email from you know finance, and uh, uh, it just it made, made me so angry. And and my uh, <laughs> I looked down at my blood glucose monitor, and it's totally going berserk, right? And that's because you know cortisol is being released. It's one of the stress hormones, and it is a glucocorticoid, and its job is to release glucose, any glucose that's remaining from my liver. So, you know, they're getting this massive glucose response, having fasted for, you know, probably um, 18 to, uh, to 20 hours. And it was just bizarre to me. I, I never really appreciated until then the impact of stress on my, on my physiology. Um, and then the, you know, again, back to findings on the CGM, I would be sleeping at night, wake up in the middle of the night. Many of us have this, the dawn effect. And um, this is again working in the government sector in, in New Zealand. And I wake up at 3 a.m. and my, my you know my glucose would be spiking again at at 3 a.m. So these are giving me great insights that things aren't really as optimal as I'd, I'd like them to be. And it can it's it you know all that that feedback can be so profound because it allows you to change behaviors in your life. So um, and you know we can go into what those those might be after. Oh, absolutely. And I think you and I can definitely share stories about how finance has caused us to start checking email later in the day, uh, because I've noticed that exact same instance that whenever my accountant sends my, sends me an email, my, and I, I only have access to a freestyle Libra at this moment, but, um, my, 
blood glucose just goes through the roof. <laughs> it's just like, oh, <laughs> accountant. Okay, email. And it, it wouldn't even have to open it and it'll go up. So Yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> there we go. Shout, shout out to my accountant if he's listening right now. But <laughs> let's let's transition because you spend a lot of time with elite endurance athletes, and I've listened and read some of your listened to some of your podcasts, but also read some of your work. And I want to understand common nutrition pitfalls uh, among these athletes and particularly endurance, because there are a number of triathletes that do listen to this podcast. And can we touch on specifically your study that you've done with Phil Maffetone? For sure. So we've done a few. Yeah, um, exactly. So I, I guess the specific one would be athletes fit, but unhealthy. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. That, that's, that's an interesting story. So I'll just back up just briefly and, and tell you how I met. And, you know, it comes to another uh, study that you've, that we're going to, you know, we might talk about a little bit. And that was uh, basically a a study where I showed that, you know, fat oxidation is actually can be quite high at high intensity exercises. And um, specifically, you know, we, yeah, we showed that the more well-trained you are, the more that, uh, that fat oxidation is important for sustaining high intensity intervals. And Phil, you know, reached out to me. Um, like I'm someone special <laughs> and, and he, and he said, I've been trying to prove that for the last 30 years. Thank you so much for doing that study. And then I, you know, Phil was you know, be, me being a triathlete. I was, you know, in, you know, Phil was a, an absolute uh, guru in my world. And, uh, you know, as I was reading his books and stuff and I was trying to be a pro pro triathlete in my twenties and here he's sending me an email. So it was quite, uh, it was, it was a nice meeting. And then, um, when I was in the, the, the government sector and working with Olympians in, in New Zealand, Phil was helping me basically try to, to um, nurse some of these really overtrained athletes back to, back to health. So we wrote a paper on some of these observations called fit, but unhealthy. And that is um, this interesting observation where we can, the, the two concepts of being fit, but, um, but, but, and healthy, sorry, being fit. And then, separate that healthy uh, they're completely they're different things so you can be extremely fit you can be you know f- like fitness is really the ability to do a certain amount of work or you know perf- to actually like perform the exercise but you can d- and you can still do that in an unhealthy state it's not ideal but you'll see this very often so when i go to a triathlon um, or a marathon, or you name the the mass event where there's loads of people there. It's quite incredible when you, if you really were just to look at every individual there, there's a large proportion that are carrying more body mass than they need to, right? So if we're going to be doing, um, you know, a DEXA scan or a, um, a you know, a, a, a height to waist ratio on those individuals they're failing the test and they're you know they're they're clearly uh, un, unhealthy they're they're all the signs are pointing that they're we'd call them over fat and yeah that's um that's really where the you know the 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 idea for the paper sort of came from and yeah the a lot of the other premise and the key point in the paper is that 
so much of this is, is diet related. A lot of it comes from the processed food industry. It's one of the key, we believe one of the key factors that's in the milieu of all the kind of, um, you know, the perfect storm that is causing some of um, the overfatness and the unhealthiness, despite the fact that they may be, they may actually be fit. The two concepts are um, completely separate. Um, if you want ultimate performance, you want to be fit and healthy, but um, make no mistake about it. You can, the, the concepts are apart. All right. Um, they're, they're separate. Did that make sense, Boomer? It uh, makes perfect sense. Now, can we get into the role? Because we have a lot of executives that listen to this show. And there are people who have stress coming from numerous parts of life. Uh, can we get in the role here of the HPA axis and how that plays a role in whether or not you know you're, you become this sort of fit but unhealthy person? All right. So you guys are probably wondering, what are the brands of blue light blockers that I recommend? Well, one of them is the sponsor for today's podcast, and they are Blue Blocks. I've had the CEO, Andy Mant, on the show before where we got into a really deep dive on blue light. And you know that if you get any amount of blue light in your glasses, no matter if it's 3%, 10%, whatever, it does disrupt melatonin production. And so Andy has created blue light blockers that hold up to the highest standards. And in fact, and I'll link to it in the show notes, you can see when he's tested it versus other brands that they always come out on top. And so quality is a thing I appreciate and is what exactly I recommend for all of our clients. But if you head over to blueblocks.com, that's B-L-U-B-L-O-X.com and plug in the code DS15, you're going to get 15% off. And now on with the show. Yeah, we sure can. Um, so yeah, the HPA axis is the stands for the hypothalamic pituitary adrenal axis, and yeah, it is. You know, it starts at your um, your hypothalamus, um, which is the interlink between the hormonal systems, in the endocrine system, and the nervous system. Right. And again, if we go back to the example that we gave with our finance team that is sending us emails, you know, we're perceiving that ultimately as a stress. And that's kicking off through the HPA axis um, to cause our adrenals um, to, uh, to secrete their stress hormones, right? Like, um, like cortisol and, um, and adrenaline. So it's giving us that kind of that rush. And it's, you know, I, um, well, you know, we're, we're trying to ultimately run away from the tiger in the, in the, in the jungle, right? It's there mm-hmm. to kind of save us, but we don't need that anymore in, in today's, uh, today's modern world. We're not, um, you know, we kind of need to, we need to alter our strategies and, um, that, but that, that's actually what's causing, that's the system that's, that's being, uh, that's being taxed and hit, hit on. And, and yeah, the, ultimately that caught, that's the, the key, um, factor that is causing, you know, the, the, the stress and the, the various resultant metabolic, um, uh, hor- you know, consequences. So yeah, that's, you know, there, there's other factors in, as well that are involved. It's also stimulating the, um, the immune system as well. And, mm-hmm. uh, and the immune system is also kind of, uh, you know, it's, it's affected, 
the you know it's there's these other other factors out there as well that are the you know the um uh free radicals and um you know reactive oxygen species that are again causing havoc on the on the body you know probably won't go into that too much detail but in in essence there's um there's a there's a heavy stress situation and a chronic inflammation that that is that is really underpinning the whole body and we need to kind of put a stop on that you know again back to the tiger in the jungle we would have you know there there would have been a period of time when we recover from all that and um and and we'd be we'd be good again but unfortunately in today's world with uh you know the phones in our faces the computers in our faces and the you know the constant finance emails that are continuing well we're getting that tiger in the jungle chronically and it's not a good situation the the situation is what you're seeing if you look at the the masses and the, the over fatness and the unhealthiness can we transition a little bit into i guess either dieting for training or pre-race dieting and uh, what may be a very common misconception, and, and I'd love to just kind of pick your brain on this as a person who's trying to figure out how the hell to diet for long endurance races. So when I think of endurance racing, uh, there's this sort of archaic perception that they need to carb load the night before or during. Uh, how can you determine as a person, you know, are you like are are carbs necessary for everybody in an endurance event? Uh, it really depends. It really depends on the endurance event and depends on the individual. So, so let's let's talk, let's kind of break it down then. Uh, if we were to break it down in sort of uh, anything from a half marathon, then a marathon, and then sort of longer ultras, what would what would be uh, sort of how you would evaluate that for an individual? Mm, yeah. So I'm, I'm training a couple uh, that is doing a, a half marathon right now. And uh, you know, we were just talking about the, the fueling that's required. And so for a half marathon in their context where they're partially, they're doing some intermittent fasting and then their, their diet is mostly, you know, um, kind of mixed during the the feeding window so they're kind of doing an 18 six in and they so they're mostly fat mostly fat adapted the fueling for a half marathon really is not going to require too much carbohydrate they I, for them i might recommend a little bit of you can uh to start uh in the in the morning just to almost you know um make them feel good a little bit, uh, but not have a, a big spike in their glucose and insulin uh, that might block their fat oxidation. And then they would, you know, probably not need anything for that half marathon, which they're doing in about, you know, they're doing that in about 90 minutes, right? So mm-hmm. that's that. And then as we be, go beyond that, you know, 90 minute duration towards, towards a two hour performance, this is where carbohydrates start to make a little bit more of an impact and we can begin to supplement a little bit depending on, again, on that, that individual and how uh, fat adapted or not they are. So some, some individuals are, who are very, very fat adapted, they'll, they'll need hardly a, hardly a thing, but they might just want a little bit of uh, uh, 
you know, a small shot of um, some sort of carbohydrate product, you know, whether it's a gel or a splash of, uh, of Gatorade under their tongue to allow them to, um, you know, their, their sympathetic nervous system to, to kick off a little bit more. Uh, studies have shown that that's even a mouth rinse can, can assist you know, almost a little bit of a trick to your, to your system to tell it that it's getting energy. Sorry, what and, was that again? Well, there's studies that are showing like mouth rinse. Okay. They, they, you can actually mouth rinse with okay. a, with a glue, with a, a glucose product Interesting. Uh, glucose versus placebo. And even just the mouth rinse with the glucose solution versus placebo will show a benefit after about, you know, two to three hours. Um, actually, I think it's even 90, 90 minutes to, 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 to three hours, a lot of mouth rinse studies in there. So just, they're just showing that it doesn't take much, but even just you, you can get a little bit of a trick in terms of your performance by just putting, um, you know, just having some form of a mouth rinse, uh, you know, and you could swallow a bit of it. It really wouldn't matter at that point. But, you know, usually when you're performing, your breathing rate's pretty high. You're not, you know, you're not taking a whole lot in um, mm-hmm. if the intensity is high. All right. And then as you go down towards these longer duration events towards marathon, you know, um, towards Ironmans, half Ironmans and Ironmans, well, now, you know, you're starting to burn a lot more of your glycogen stores, your stored glycogen. And it's, you know, you're again context dependent with if you're a massively fat adapted individual, as I like to get most of my athletes to be they're not still not going to need too much, you know, maybe 50 to 60 grams of carbohydrate per hour as we go from half to full Ironman distance. But if you're a carb adapted athlete, you know, you're, you know, you're, you're on a mixed to high carbohydrate diet and you know, your, your overall fat oxidation rate might be a little bit lower and you might, you know, you might be a little bit more reliant on carbohydrate. Well, you could be up from the 60 to 90 grams an hour. Some are even, you know, in a hundred and hundred and ten, hundred and twenty grams an hour with some of these multiple transportable carbohydrate products in this two to one ratio. A lot of the gels, um, gels are out there that that have this in there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and but it, yeah, so it's it, again, keep, it depends on who we who we're talking to. It's always hard to give, you know absolute recommendations of course of course (laughs) we're all individual right totally totally so it's i've really learned that the hard way i used to give absolute but now i I really need to see that who that person is in front of me before making these solid recommendations when you say massively fat adapted people uh what do you mind just explaining a little bit more about what you mean there Yep. So I would say, so my massively fat adapted individuals would include the athletes on my training peaks profile who can go in and do an eight hour ride fasted. No, no issues. Like they just, they do a, you know, they're, and that'll blow people away. Right. But this, that's how fat adapted they, they can get. And, um, it's, it's, you know, it, to many individuals today, that's, that's like, they think that's impossible, mm-hmm. but that's actually been done by, you know, Tour de France coaches and athletes since the, you know, since the fifties. So it's, it's not, um, if you actually really go back, it's, it's been done for a long time, but it's, uh, in, in today's Western world, that's, that's thought to be impossible. 
but that's that's how fat adapted they get so you, they just you, you know at a lower aerobic intensity so below your first ventilatory threshold um you know kind of you know below l2 we'd call it mm-hmm. just just rock out on that pace for a solid eight hours and uh, you know that's the the pinnacle of of training for that and um yeah that's once they reach that level, we know they are massively fat adapted. So their ketones will probably be sitting at, uh, you know, beta hydroxybutyrate levels of sitting around. Oh, after that ride, it'd be close to close to four or five. But mm-hmm. um, a resting BHB of probably you know one point five and maximal fat oxidation rates of well over you know one point five grams per um, per per minute. Let's talk, uh, if this is the appropriate time, your paper on fat oxidation. If you don't mind just going through the conclusions and what you guys did in that paper, because it seemed to insinuate something that if you have more experience with uh, sort of a, if you're more fat adapted, you're able to pull off a little bit more in terms of high intensity interval training using a higher fat diet. Do I have that right? Well, yes and no. Let me just kind of explain the yeah. explain the study what it did show. So, it was performed by the late uh, Ken Hedlund, who uh, was from Norway, and, and in the lab of uh, Dr. Steven Seiler. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, yeah, it was. It's titled "Rethinking the Role of Fat Oxidation," and we really Ken and his colleagues looked at uh, a high intensity interval training session. And this was done in a group of recreationally trained runners, training, say, for, uh, you know, about three times a week compared to a very well-trained cohort, cohort of, mm-hmm. of uh, athletes that were, um, you know, they're, what, was, what are they called? Um, randonneurs or, or um, they're, they do these, uh, they do these crazy races where they're like they're navigating and whatnot. I've forgotten the name. <laughs> that sounds like fun. Yeah, yeah, but basically, but they're they're you know they're they're way up in their um you know they're 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 training like you know eleven sessions in a week, right? So they're doing lots of loads of double runs, big big Ks, and um, yeah, they're comparing these two uh, groups performing uh, you know five minute eight I think it was eight by five minute intervals uh, on the on the treadmill and that they're up of, on a 5% gradient and we're measuring their fat. They're measuring their fat oxidation rates, their fat and carbohydrate oxidation rates using one of those VO two max carts. You've probably seen, all of us have probably seen pictures of athletes that are where we're measuring the, the VO two max, you know, during, during exercise. Mm-hmm. Well, you can also get in that you, you're, you're basically getting uh, markers of, um, oxygen uptake and also carbon dioxide production. And from those, we can run some calculations to determine how much fat versus carbohydrate is being burnt in the, in the metabolic machinery to perform that. Now, these are all self-selected. So the athlete gets to choose what's the maximally sustainable for themselves during those high-intensity interval training. Obviously, the well-trained individuals running up that 5% gradient are going to be performing a much at a much uh, faster speed than the, the less trained individuals. And I think it was like, uh, you know, it was 15 kilometers an hour up this hill versus, um, versus about, uh, you know, 10 or 11 kilometers an hour up this hill for their, for their hit sessions. 
what we, what we found was that the fat oxidation rate was threefold greater in the well-trained individuals versus the recreational trained um, uh, runners. And ultimately it was the, the carbohydrate rate was almost the same across well-trained versus um, uh, recreationally trained. And the, the key distinguishing factor was the, that, that was related to the performance was the fat oxidation rate. So um, now there's nothing to do with diet in this, to okay. be honest. It was, it was all exercise training induced. So, but what it just showed was that at high exercise intensities, it's not, even though you'll individually be burning a lot of carbohydrate at high, high exercise intensities, the difference factor, the add-on factor you want is the fat oxidation rate. You want to maximize your fat oxidation rate to be able to perform a high-intensity interval training. And you can shift that in yourself through both exercise training and, and your diet. In fact, you can magnify an exercise training response by lowering your carbohydrate in a session. Right? So, and this is, again, back to the fasted sessions on, in, you know, in our athletes. If you can do, a fast, you know, do, a, do your training at high intensity and also be fasted or under a low carbohydrate state, you're going to, again, magnify the signal that you're giving your cells uh, and all your body to adapt. So it can be very powerful when you manipulate both the exercise and the diet at the same time. And I'm speaking just sort of off the top of my head here. Does that, based on what you just said, does that mean we could accelerate the rate of uh, fat, adapt- fat adaption in people based on just simply exercising in a fasted state? You got it. And that is what we do. So within the, you know, my sessions that I'm, I'm um, prescribing for my athletes, they're, you know, we're, we're prescribing a, a diet state for those sessions additionally. Okay. So a lot, of, a lot of coaches will be prescribing training, but we're actually pre- we're prescribing diet with that training as well because we want a little bit more bang for buck from those sessions. So ketogenic diets, and I, I'm one of these people that I would say 80% of the time, I prefer to be in a, a, a fat-adapted ketogenic state. Are there downsides? And keep in mind, like I, I've done this myself for on and off for several years now. Are there downsides to following a ketogenic diet for endurance athletes or marathon type runners? The latter part, I may be biased in asking you that question. <laughs> so again, we have to go back where we started with the individual. Yeah. And so we you know, there could be downsides for certain individuals and, you know, there'll be a handful of listeners out there that would definitely probably fall into that camp or at least believe that they fall into that camp. And however, we did recently do a study and this was, um, Lucas, uh, Cyprian and colleagues. Um, and it's, you know, there's a blog on that. There's a hit science blog that, that, uh, the listeners can, can look to if they want to check this out. But what we did, and this is again a, a study first, we we really wanted to look at the um, the time course of adaptation to low carb ketogenic diets and its response on exercise. So what we did is we took uh, groups of groups of subjects, about ten in each group, 
and and one did a normal diet and the other one did a ketogenic diet and we uh, exercise trained them for 12 weeks it's a long time to do in a in a study right like it's it's easy to just go and say do a 12 week study but that's if you're actually a researcher and you're you're conducting this study it's hard to keep a hold of 20 individuals train them for that long and make sure that their diet is exact and that's but that was achieved by Lucas and his team uh, in uh, in Ostrava, Czech Republic, and ultimately, what they you know what was revealed from the data, we measured heart rate variability um, to kind of get insight into that. But we saw after you know in about the first two weeks, plus or minus a week, week and a half on that side, we see this you know real challenge to the central nervous system indicated through the heart rate variability where they're going through the keto flu in that first, you know, uh, one to three weeks or thereabouts. Um, so, and a lot, uh, and so, yeah, the, I guess the answer to your question is if you're in that, if you're not fat adapted and you're administering a ketogenic diet for yourself and your body is still working hard to adjust to this diet, whether and you know whether you're individually through one to three weeks, uh, you know hard to say where you you're going to individually fall into that. But yeah, you're gonna you're gonna probably experience problems. But what we found was as the study progressed and we continued to administer high intensity interval training sessions and test their performance, everyone in that in that study that were on the ketogenic diet they adapted and they were still able to perform their high intensity exercise right to like full capacity, um, right through the study. So, and yeah, we just published that in Frontiers Physiology. And so individually, if you're in that one to three time, um, one to three week time course of adaptation, for sure you may individually experience something, but uh, I would, if you're in it, you know, I would try to kind of push things out for yourself and, mm-hmm. um, you know, push yourself at least to, you know, one, one to two months to um, see if there really is potentially a benefit for you there. And that maybe high intensity exercise is uh, quite possible beyond that. Reframing my question is if you're personally, I, I love the feeling of being in ketosis. I love the cognitive benefits of it. Uh, I love just sort of how I perform in general on it. Is there any reason why I should be introducing additional carbs when endurance training? Well, maybe again, it depends on who you are. So if but you let's are, talk to me specifically here. Uh, if, if I'm training, like, let's say I've gone, a year and a half uh, doing predominantly, you and I have talked before, sort of powerlifting type training. Now I'm doing quite a lot of endurance training for a marathon. Uh, if I enjoy and just prefer foods that happen to fall in sort of this realm of a higher fat diet, is there any particular need for me to reintroduce more carbs as a result of the training? No, not, I don't think for you, Boomer, for sure. Um, I think you're, I think you're going to be with, in your context, if I was training you, uh, you know, there would be nothing wrong with experimenting in certain sessions. Mm -hmm. I'm a believer in feel and, um, you know, and, and then also monitoring various different things. 
we, you know, we could discover that something um, that you actually really benefit in a certain session from that. There's nothing wrong with doing that, but I would believe that you wouldn't see too much, um, too much of a difference. And in fact, like sometimes it can, you know, that with that feel, it can make you feel um, not great, right? Like with mm-hmm. you having like a, um, a, a carbohydrate product. I mean, I, I have a, a very adverse reaction to, to sugar products now. Yeah. Um, I, I just don't enjoy them and I can, I, like my body rebels quite, um, quite clearly when I, when I take something on like that. So, so for you, you know, uh, but I will say that, so for some of my athletes, uh, we will experiment with, you know, and we know that we're going to be using a, some sort of form of a carbohydrate product on the, you know, the course themselves, the course itself. Mm-hmm. We will, you know, use some carbohydrates in certain sessions. And this is the whole, you know, uh, train low, train high kind of approach. So certain high intensity interval sessions could be done in a higher carbohydrate state. But these are, you know, many of these individuals are, right at the pointy end of, of performance and some really want that and others don't. So it again comes down to the individual. You mentioned metrics, uh, blood glucose, HRV, any other particular ones that you would pay attention to? Uh, I, again, just, I'm a big believer in tracking your, your actual performance too. Mm-hmm. Right. So in just the, again, basics like, uh, the watch we were speaking about before we started with, uh, you know, having, something that's monitoring your, you know, your speed and GPS, your heart rate and your, your power output. If you're doing a, uh, doing cycling. Okay. So the watch we were speaking of, by the way, was the Garmin. You, you were sporting the Garmin, which one? It was a 920 XT that I, I use. It's almost becoming a little bit older school now, but it's still. <laughs> Your vin- still vintage watch. is trendy, right? Vintage is trendy. Yeah, yeah. We see loads loads of athletes are still still using them, but there's some newer brands that are out there as well. Mm-hmm. I'm going to have to consider upgrading in the future. Can't, yeah. How do you feel about, and I didn't send you this one beforehand, but how do you feel about exogenous ketones on just sort of training, but also race day? Oh man, we are still in the infancy of understanding how best to use these. And, uh, you know, Brianna Stubbs would be definitely the person you'd want to have a good chat with. Um, she's over at human in, uh, in San Fran. Um, but, and, and I've definitely experimented a little bit with these and, um, you know, I've, I've had, uh, I've had some pretty positive, uh, results myself with, mm-hmm. with using, using this. Um, but I've also <laughs> gone and administered some of these to some, some of my athletes and with incredibly disastrous results. <laughs> Interesting. So, yeah. So it's, uh, it, again, there's, there's so much we need to learn about these and, I listened to a good podcast and I was, I was actually in, um, in Oxford. I was invited to Oxford from Kieran Clark's, uh, uh, lab who invented a lot of the ketones and Brianna mm-hmm. was over in the lab. That's where we got to meet as well. And one of the athletes I was speaking to there was an ex pro cyclist named Mick Rogers, uh, from Australia. And he was saying anecdotally that what he found when he was taking these exogenous ketones was how they were really more more or less the the biggest advantage he felt 
was that he was feeling it in his recovery. And that is in the tour, when they were taken in the tour, they could really back up their performance the, the following day so much better when they were you know, taking uh, ketones afterwards. Mm-hmm. And that makes a lot of sense. You know, when you think of ketones as this um, sort of uh, a substrate that's able to be um, you know, used for so many of the body's process uh, processes of of recovery. Remember, it's a it's an energy substrate, and it's the most efficient energy substrate of all of those that we have. So, substrates are your your glucose, your fat, um, and you know, ketones are the most efficient energy one in, in giving your body energy back to to recover. So that was, and, and I again, I'm always big into really into feel and trying to figure out what the um, yeah, in terms of figuring out what how, how things are actually working, so that's that's one we have to keep an eye on. But I know that there there might be maybe its biggest advantage um, might be in the recovery afterwards from sessions, as opposed to any acute effect that we're seeing per se in in a single session. So you know, yeah, keep keep hold of that um, that you know. Keep keep an eye on the exogenous ketone research, but that's one that's one um, potential way we can use that to um, to enhance our performance in the long run. Uh, were you using esters or salts? I was using. I've used both, and uh, I, again, in alignment with what most people are saying, the esters seem to be a little bit more, um, you know, efficacious and. That's my personal experience with them as well. Um, Are there certain types of training which actually put you in, I guess we're speaking here more specifically about endurance training, about put you in more in danger of just burning out when you're on a lower carbohydrate diet? Yeah, I I guess. And then not per se, like it's, so exercise training, again, is also a two-edged sword. And this comes back to the unhealthy uh, fit athlete. And, and we have to remember that when we exercise, we also get a, uh, you know, especially when we use high-intensity um, high exercise, we're again getting that same stress response from the HP axis that we began with. So again, we can have that sort of, uh, you know, perfect storm half happening if we've got other stress factors in, in our life and then we're adding high-intensity interval training to that also. So there's no, you know, mixing that with a low-carb diet is typically more the better thing to be doing because you're, you know, a lot, a lot of times with, depends on the carbohydrate that you choose, but if you're having a high-processed carbohydrate diet, alongside of you know high intensity interval training and now you get you know two two various stressor factors and they're multiplying um but so no there's no issues for the low carb you might just see a lower performance acutely mm-hmm. you know um, as as that study uh showed with uh, that we we talked about with the um lucas cyprian study from a from astrava in, in check and but no, it's uh, you, you know your your acute performance might come down if you're feeling in, in that keto flu type phase, but um, there's no massive adverse effects. That's for sure. In fact, it can be you're again you're you're gonna 
magnify the, the response subsequent to that session, typically. Dr. Larson, you've answered so many of my questions today, and I'm cognizant of the time. So I want to transition now into a little bit of a modified final questions for you, uh, if that's okay. Yeah. Uh, first question, how do you unwind? Oh, I guess I, I would unwind just in, um, you know, through speaking to people. <laughs> that's pretty important. So like, like um, you know, friends and family and, um, you know, go exercising with friends and family, you know, um, you know training. And, um, and then, yeah, uh, always a, a period of meditation before I, I hopefully sleep uh, soundly through the night. I love, uh, love, my, love my seven to 10 hours of sleep. <laughs> beautiful, beautiful. What's your favorite piece of technology that you've purchased in the past year, which has upgraded your life, if you have one? Yeah, that's a real simple one. And that is, I'm not sure if I gave the same response the last time we spoke, but it's really, it's just Sam Harris waking up app. And it's the, um, I asked a different question. You use that one, but that's, that's great. I I love that. It repeats. That's a double endorsement for Sam. Yeah. Yeah. It's really, uh, it's, it's profound and everyone else that I've, you know, kind of hang with or, or on it as well. And it's, it's pretty massive. It's re- it's really it's really cool for getting by in in today's world. So recommend it to everyone. You are one of probably five to, I would guess, ten guests that has recommended. I, I use it as well. I, I kind of alternate it, but uh, we have a number of guests that use that Sam Harris app. So one of these days, <laughs> maybe we'll get Sam on the show. But no, that'd be amazing. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Larson, where can people find out more about you? Yeah, I'm available, you know, through the, um, so my websites are plusandprof.com and hitscience.com. And uh, I've got a Twitter account too, which is Paul B. Larson. So um, yeah, always great to hear from everyone. Dr. Larson, thank you so much for joining the show. This has been incredible. You answered a lot of my questions on endurance trading. So I appreciate you taking the time. That's a pleasure, Boomer. Thanks for having me on, man. Excellent. To all the superhumans listening out there, have Have an an absolutely absolutely epic day. day. Okay, so many training gems in that one. I've got a lot to take away, a lot of notes to take, and really am interested in the prospect of ketone esters during training. I'll let you guys know how that goes. The show notes for this one are at Dr. Larson 2. That's Dr. Larson, L-A-U. R-S-E-N, two as in the number two. If you enjoyed the show, please share it with a friend. Share it with several friends. And if you really, really enjoyed the show, head on over to iTunes and leave us a five-star rating. Every rating really helps. And superhumans, I appreciate you. Have an absolutely epic day.